Welcome to Query, where we provide simple answers to complex tech questions. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Serenity Caldwell. Hey! Hey! How's it going, Stephen? It, uh, it is good. We're, uh, we're back. We have, we have a whole bunch of fun stuff today. You got a ruler out in preparation for the show this week, <laughs> which I find hilarious. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're going to get into that. Uh, we were talking before the show. I mean, I, I may, you know, know all the ins and outs of the... Uh, the Apple support documents and all this stuff, but, but you, you go that extra step. <laughs> I, uh, I attempt, uh, not uh, properly sourced, independently verified testing. Uh, so I am not a registered scientist, but I still try, I guess. <laughs> it's handcrafted artisanal answers here on query. Exactly. All, all of the handcrafted, uh, courtesy <laughs> my tools at Home Depot. Oh, boy. So uh, we're going to get to that. But first, we're going to start um, with a pair of questions uh, from William and Chris that I thought uh, went well together. Uh, William writes, I have a late 2006 iMac that I put a two terabyte hard drive in. Uh, it's not used for anything day to day, but I want to do something productive with it, like maybe turn it into a server. Any suggestions on what I could do and how I would do it? So this is this is a question that's right up my alley because I like old computers. And I like finding uses for computers. I like have like a Mac Mini here doing something, a Mac Mini there doing something. Uh, an iMac though is um, a little bit of a different beast because it's obviously much larger. You can't just stash it in a closet or under the TV or something. Uh, but I still think you could do some useful things with it. Now, a late 2006 iMac is capped at running OS X Lion, which is you know several versions behind now, but it's not so old that it's uh, it's kind of fallen out of use. I still think there's a lot you could do with a Lion machine on a network uh, to, to sort of have uh, available to you. And I think the the simplest thing probably that, that came to mind for me is just simple file sharing. So you can have a folder full of stuff on that two terabyte hard drive and share that with other Macs and PCs on your local network. So have a bunch of stuff in there, turn on file sharing and system preferences. There's a support document in the show notes, and then you can just browse on the network and get to that folder. And, um, to me, I think that's the kind of the, the simplest thing. It's really easy to set up. You don't need Mac OS 10 server. You just need regular old Mac OS lion that's on that machine. And, uh, and you can get to it. Can I ask Steven, um, if you have say, you know, you have this iMac and a two terabyte hard drive in it, um, can you use it for like as a remote backup server in addition to kind of just using it as a, a network server? Yeah, absolutely. So you can run, uh, Apple calls it time machine server on, on a system like this. I, I think with lion, you may need, uh, to upgrade to Mac OS 10 lion server, which you can may have difficulty tracking down. Um, but basically what it does is it, it sort of blesses a file share to say, Hey, uh, other other computers can use that as a time machine destination. Uh, the reason you want server for this is that server gives you the option to limit the size of those backups. So the way time machine works, as you, as you may know, it's designed just to fill up a drive. So I have a, for instance, I have a one terabyte SSD in my iMac and I have a four terabyte hard drive as my time machine drive and it will fill up all four terabytes before it starts overriding things. Oh boy. And, and 
So I have plenty of breathing room on my system, but if you have two or three computers backing up to a two terabyte drive, you could fill that up really quickly. And so uh, OSN server lets you set file size limitations on that. Um, there'll be a couple articles in the show notes, but yeah, that that's definitely something you could use. Or you could look at something like CrashPlan, which allows you to back up uh, from a client to a server on your own network. So that may be an alternative if you can't get Lion, uh, Lion working for you. Yeah, I think that's that's a great idea. Um, especially, you know, uh, 2006 iMac is not going to have the uh, the brilliance of modern iMac screens. So it's not the kind of computer where you're like, man, I still need to showcase that front and center. Unless you're <laughs> right. Steven and you love showcasing old Apple tech. Um, but I don't know. I think that there, uh, there are some really good ways to use that hard drive in it. Um, as Stephen was saying, um, there's also, of course, media sharing, um, which you can probably get into a little bit more, Stephen. I know, I know, like, you could probably use Plex, right? I've never actually set up Plex, uh, but uh, pretty much every, every geeky friend I know uses it. And I, <laughs> I always feel so bad that I'm like, I'm not a media sharing person, but I, I should be, should I be? Yeah, so you, you go a couple of different ways. You could run, you know, standard iTunes and have iTunes sharing turned on. So we do this at home where we have a big library on our home server. And as it it's basically full of just movies and TV shows. And we, we can share those with the Mac and iOS devices. Or, yeah, you could, you, could use, uh, you could use Plex. I struggled on Plex's website to find system requirements for Plex server. So you may, it may be a little hit or miss there. But... Basically, how how Plex server works is it's an application that would run on the iMac and you point it to a folder full of videos and you don't have to organize them uh, really in any way. Uh, It's really smart and it basically shares that where you could watch the videos in that folder on something like an Apple TV or an iOS device. So I have Plex set up at home. The only thing I have in my Plex folder is a bunch of old Apple keynotes. Sometimes it's helpful to find them on the Apple TV. <laughs> um, it's, it's loosely related to my job, right? So I tell, tell the other people in my house. But, oh uh, yeah, uh, definitely. Old Steve Jobs keynotes. A1. That's right. It's super vital. A lot of people really like Plex because you can share that library with others. Uh, for instance, if, uh, you know, William, if you got this set up and you had a bunch of movies in there that you wanted to share with uh, a family member who lived elsewhere, you can give them, you know, kind of a secret code and they can load your Plex library and all that could be coming off the iMac. Again, assuming that it meets the system requirements, which Plex, I could not find on the website. Um, so definitely check that out. I think that's a good use. You know, two terabytes is a good bit of space and you can get a lot of media on that thing. Um, I would definitely recommend on any system like this, if it's possible, having it plugged into Ethernet because it's going to be uh, faster and more stable than wireless. You know, a late 2006 iMac has an older airport card in it uh, so you're not going to get, you know, 802.11ac or anything. So Ethernet may be a nice way to go if it's, you know, if it's convenient to do in your house, uh, wherever the iMac is. But this question was in conjunction with one from Chris uh, saying that he's got a late 2011 13-inch MacBook Pro. So this is a non-Retina MacBook Pro. RAM is already maxed out. Uh, but what else could I do to extend the life of it? And Chris is a little bit further down the road than William and that Chris's notebook will run uh, Mac OS High Sierra. My guess is High Sierra may be the last OS it would run, but we don't know that until next year. Um, anytime you've got a Mac that you want to extend the life of and it's reasonable to open, 
an SSD is always a good idea because it's going to run much, much faster. It's also going to run cooler, which will help the rest of the system's longevity. You don't have to spin the fans as hard because SSDs generate very little heat compared to spinning hard drives. Um, and, you know, in a system from 2011, you know, that hard drive, if it's original, has a bunch of miles on it. And any hard drive, like every hard drive will fail 100%, but the older a hard drive is, the more likely it is that you're going to run into an issue with it. And putting a new SSD in it is going to make it feel faster. It's going to be more reliable. You still want a backup, of course, but you'd be really surprised how a system from like 2011 or 2012 runs well with, you know, maxed out RAM and an SSD. It's really pretty phenomenal because the processors, unless you're doing audio or video editing, for everyday use, the processors in these things are still really good, but, you know, the drives are slow and they may not have enough RAM. So definitely check out an SSD. Uh, I think you could get, um, a, a, you know, a good bit more life from an SSD than a hard drive. Uh, and then I think lastly, what came to mind was, you know, if you're using it as a notebook, um, you know, it may be time to check the cycle count on that battery. If that battery life is pretty poor, you can find replacement batteries. You know, don't go to eBay and buy one, you know, for $25 that's shipping from somewhere in Asia. Like, go to a reputable source, um, like iFixit, and they sell refurbished batteries. I've put a bunch in MacBook Pros and MacBook Airs of this vintage. And, you know, you can, it can really extend that life of that machine. And so I think, I think a 2011 machine is definitely worth an investment. Uh, if you if you need to use it every day and you don't have the money to replace it, then you know an SSD and a battery you may be in a couple hundred bucks, but that's way less than a new MacBook or MacBook Air. Yeah, I completely agree with you there, Stephen. Um, in that I actually I have a, a slightly older MacBook Pro that I did the exact same thing to a 2009 15 inch MacBook Pro, um, and I I loved that machine. You know, it was top of the line. I used it for pretty much everything until I switched to an iPad only setup. Um, and I didn't want, it was still in perfectly good condition and I didn't really want to throw it away or give it away. Uh, so I, I bought myself an SSD for, I think 150 bucks off of Otherworld computing. Um, and it was a really, that was this, uh, MacBook pro is one of the easy ones where, you know, you pop off the back, you don't even have to use screws. Um, and you could just replace the hard drive. And that was uh, like, I got so much extra use out of that to the point where that laptop still sits in one of our guest rooms as kind of a, a media player. And it's like, it's a 15 inch screen, you know, it's not going to beat our 60 inch television, but, uh, but it's nice for people who want to, you know, just watch Netflix or something while they're hanging out at our house. Uh, so, so yeah. Definitely extend the life of your computers. Your computers are great, and uh, they're mostly built to last, save for occasional oh, software bugs. Key- keyboards oh, that Apple. fail with a piece of dust, but we're not gonna I'm not gonna talk about that today. <clears throat> no, we're not gonna harp on that. Instead, let's talk about how to submit questions to Query, eh, Stephen? That's a great idea. If you want to submit a question, use the hashtag #AskQuery on Twitter, and we will see it. Uh, Apple Windows. Microsoft, Amazon, Google, whatever is on your mind, we can talk about it. And that brings us to uh, Benjamin's qu- question. And I'm going to ask this question of you because I, I'm going to be learning right alongside Benjamin because I have not gone down this road yet. But what tools are you using to edit and compose video on iOS? 
Oh man. Um, I, so I loved this question when I saw it because I do a lot of video editing on iOS, uh, far more than I thought I ever would quite honestly. Once we started having 4k video, uh, and especially high quality slow motion video available on the iPhone, um, as a training resource, uh, at least for me outside of professional use, uh, with work, but where I play roller derby, um, an iPhone is almost invaluable as a training resource uh, because of the the nice quality of the footage that it captures. And now with the iPhone 10 uh, the and iPhone 8, the slow motion um, improvements, the fact that you can shoot at 1080p and 240 frames per second means you, it, you have an incredible video camera right in your pocket. Um, so a lot of the times I will shoot just directly in the camera app, um, just like I said, over the years, Apple's stock camera app has gotten better about having, you know, multiple formats. It now, if you have an iPhone 8 or series or an iPhone 10 series, you can shoot in 24 frames per second uh, natively before you had to use a third party app like Filmic Pro to kind of tweak that or fiddle with that. Um, and Filmic, I should say, Filmic Pro is is still excellent. And I really I recommend it if you want to do something more complicated in camera with your video uh, recording. Um, but otherwise, most of the time I just use the stock camera app because I'm not trying to I'm not trying to film a, a music video or um, or most of the time I'm not trying to film a gadget review. Uh, so I, I frame my shot the same way I normally would I save it to photos. Um, and there I, I use a couple of different uh, apps to kind of play with things. So first and foremost, um, for a long time, I used just iMovie. Um, iMovie on iOS is actually quite powerful. Uh, the thing that bugs me a little bit is that it's clearly it's not really high up on the totem pole of updates. There are <laughs> certain bugs in iMovie for iOS that have been there for at least two and a half years that I have filed bug reports on. Uh, and that's, it's kind of a bummer to see that. Uh, but for, for really, really basic things and audio ducking, you know, just like if you need to cut for a straightforward video, uh, iMovie is still probably the, like the, the best out there. However, if you want to go a little bit deeper and you want to start playing with things like title generators and, uh, crossfades and keyframes, well, my friends, there is actually an app out on the App Store for you. Um, it is called Luma Fusion, and it is my new best friend. Uh, or I guess not so much new <laughs> best friend. Uh, it is my existing best friend. I think I found it um, eight or nine months ago on recommendation of, I think, Jeff Benjamin from 9 to 5, uh, if I'm getting his name wrong. I sincerely apologize. Uh, but uh, yeah, I saw a review of it, and I'm like, this is intriguing. Uh, and then I downloaded it to play with it uh, and forgot about it for a month. Uh, but when I finally decided, uh, oh, I have this video that I, you know, I've been meaning to edit, I might as well try in LumaFusion and see how this program works. Um, a was really s surprised at just how good and solid of an advanced video editor it was on iOS. And I'm saying this, I edited it. Uh, I edit most of my videos again on the iPhone directly. I don't move it to the iPad. Yeah, I was going to um, ask you about that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I have in the past, uh, especially cause the iPad supports keyboard shortcuts in certain apps. Uh, but for the most part, I just find it easy 
to shoot the thing on the, you know, to shoot on the device that you're shooting with and then edit on that same device. So it means that like, if I want to release a movie uh, and a great example is I, I did a Derby how-to video this summer um, at one of Roller Derby's largest conventions. So I shot it the night before and then while we were standing in line for the convention to open, I was literally <laughs> editing a video and released it on wow. Facebook. Yeah. So it's like, wow. that's, that's what I love about this is that it, we have that power in our, in our pockets. Um, so LumaFusion, in addition to having, you know, nonlinear video editing, and it is a little clunkier than iMovie, but it's, but it's pretty good as far as like third party nonlinear video editors go. Um, it has text generation, which is amazing. You can, you know, set um, in and out points for shapes and and you can upload custom fonts, which is really cool, which is to say uh, you can, you know, use use like a, a third party app that allows you to upload fonts as a profile and then they will show up in LumaFusion. So if you want specific branding, you can save those as templates, which is really cool. And you can use basic keyframing. Um, and just as a really quick thing for people who might be unfamiliar about keyframing, uh, it's a animation technique. So basically if you were say, if, uh, if you want to zoom in on something using software, uh, you would put a keyframe at the beginning of the frame and a keyframe or the beginning of the clip where you wanted it to start zooming in. And then a keyframe at the end of the clip where you wanted it to finish zooming in. And then you change the ratio, like how how big the photo was at the end in that second keyframe. And magic software um, basically makes in-between keyframes right there to, to allow it kind of a slow, smooth zoom in. Uh, so to have that on the iPhone, I think is really cool. It's not, it's not anywhere near as complex or uh, possible, like the possibilities are not as complex as in Final Cut Pro. But it's still a really, really cool program. Uh, so that's like my most of my process. And then I'll export it to the camera roll, at which point I'll usually upload via my Mac to YouTube. Uh, the, the upload process via iOS is still pretty clunky. Um, one other thing that I should give a shout out to uh, is an app. I don't use a whole ton, uh, but I really am. I'm impressed by it called Video Grade, uh, which allows you to color correct your clips. Um and color correct your final video. I don't, again, I don't shoot a lot that needs uh, a specific color correction applied to the entire video. Um, occasionally I'll shoot in a weird lighting so that my white balance is kind of off and I'll use mm -hmm. video grade to, to tweak that appropriately. Um, but if you, again, if you're looking to do kind of more, not even more professional video, but if you're looking to experiment more with your video, Video grades another uh, another excellent option for for making something a little bit more interesting. Yeah, that's really really interesting to hear. So I use Final Cut Pro 10 on my big iMac when I do my videos for YouTube, and I really haven't looked into into doing anything on iOS. Partially because I don't shoot with my iPhone; I shoot with a, a big Sony A7R2 mm -hmm. with SD card and lens and microphone and everything. And I could get that that content onto my iPad, but I just because I'm always in the studio, the IMAX here, I haven't really uh, looked into this. But now I am, I am curious to see what it would take to to do this. Because one thing that's really nice about iOS, and I think in particular like the iPad Pro uh, and you know Apple's recent line of A series chips, 
they can handle 4K video like it's without breaking. Yeah. And even my, so I have a late 2015, you know, Retina 5K iMac with 32 gigs of RAM and a 3.3 gigahertz i5. And even this machine will struggle on 4K video because it doesn't have sort of the optimizations that, that Apple has been able to bake in to the, the iOS line. Now, you know, I am like, in line for an iMac Pro whenever they show up for video. But I, I do, I am, I am curious to see what the workflow would be like uh, on an iPad. So I think, I think I'm going to give a LumaFusion a shot. Maybe in my next video, I'll, I'll try it on an iPad and see how far I get. Uh, because the, like the flexibility to be able to, you know, take a project with you wherever you go, like you said, you were in line or if you're traveling, um, it would be nice to have another set of tools. Maybe not that it was going to replace my workflow, but to have something else, you know, around in my pocket if I need something. It's just crazy to think about what you can do on the go now. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's the the, the key thing, right? Is that I still use Final Cut Pro on the Mac, um, but it really like it started as an experiment. I think uh, when the iPhone 6s and uh, came out, Renee and I were like, hey, this shoots 4K video. I wonder if we can shoot in 4K and then review the phones just by shooting and editing on the phones. Uh, So it started originally as a gimmick. um, And then it just, it became so much easier to review hardware just with the hardware you have in your pocket uh, that we just, I mean, uh, pretty much every iPhone video with the exception, I think of the, the latest has been shot with a with an iPhone and my last two three I uh, Apple Watch reviews have been shot on iPhone as well. Um, it's just it's especially in a reporting context. It's it's absolutely it's it's crucial to be able to not have to carry around you know ten twenty thirty pounds of kit uh, to shoot a device um, and and make do. And oh, I should give a one one secret tip. If you're trying to shoot beautiful, uh, beautiful device shots or you're reviewing stuff or anything, anything where you might need a slow-mo shot, uh, you, you guys know what, what I'm talking about. Like the YouTube, you have the, the, the item and it's just sitting there and then you have like a very slow slider pan around it. Mm -hmm. Um, normally you'd need a bunch of sliders that cost hundreds of dollars, Uh, But there is a really fun little hack that you can do just with your iPhone, which is if you shoot your uh, you shoot this in 240 frames per second, uh, slow motion, 1080p, and then shoot your your pan the way that you'd like to. uh, And then when you use it in your timeline, zoom, you know, slow it down to 240 frames per second. It creates the most beautiful, smooth slow motion pan oh yeah yeah it's just it's like you're still gonna get a better overall look if you have sliders at your disposal but again if you're trying to put something together at short notice or if you just don't have the kit with you you can still make it look great and that's that's i kind of love it yeah that's good yeah because i mean i do some of that stuff in my videos and it, it is on a real camera you know air quotes real camera <laughs> the you're right. It takes uh, a really steady hand or you have to have a slider or, um, you know, some sort of trick up your sleeve. But yeah, the frame rate thing, get it done too. Well, this is cool. I, I think what's nice about this is that it shows like like the investment in gear, right? Like 
I have an expensive camera and expensive lenses and expensive computer that, that, that isn't, that isn't necessary to create something that looks really good. And that these tools, like iMovie's free, like yeah. you just go download it on your phone that you already have and start shooting stuff. You know, I think a lot of people, I certainly felt this way. And when I started podcasting eight years ago, and even when I started doing video stuff about a year and a half ago, I felt intimidated that I didn't have the equipment that, you know, people, the channels I was watching on YouTube, the equipment that I knew they had, right? But the reality is, like, our iPhones and iPads shoot incredible video. You've you've walked through a lot of apps that can do what Final Cut does. And, you know, you can you can get started now. You don't have to... You don't have to make an investment to to get started just to find out that you that you don't like it after all or that it doesn't work out. You, you can start small and start with what we already own and then work our way up to something bigger. And I think that's I think that's the right way to go when you're talking about, you know, creating new types of content. Yeah, I agree completely. All right. Well that brings us to the speed run. And our first question is actually related to to the the editing. Uh, Rashio asks, what is the minimum focus distance for the 28 and 52 millimeter lenses on the iPhone 10? This is a great question uh, because this is something that's not actually available. <laughs> um, so Apple releases many figures on its uh, beautiful lenses on the iPhones, including things like, oh, it has a, you know, a six element lens and, oh, it's this megapixels and and the aperture is this, uh, but minimum focus distance, which is something that you'll find on pretty much any pro lens written along the side, basically saying, uh, and to define it really quickly, minimum focus distance means how far away do you have to be from your subject before the, the lens will be able to properly render it crisply. Um, AKA if you get any closer than that, you're going to get a blurry photo because the lens uh, just can't, there's, you cannot focus on that image. It's too close. Um, things like macro lenses are designed to have a very small minimum focus distance. So you can get very up close to your subject. Um, whereas uh, things like portrait lenses have a little bit more of a throw there. Uh, so, um, so I did some hands-on testing since I couldn't find these <laughs> figures and I, uh, I pulled out my handy dandy ruler uh, and my iPhone, and I put it on a, a glyph. Um, uh, yeah, so look at it centimeter by centimeter to see what we were looking at in terms of minimum focus distance. Um, and um, I did find a couple numbers for the 28 millimeter lens, um, and my own hands on testing confirmed that, which is it ends up being around 80 millimeters. Um, so your phone needs to be about 80 millimeters away from a subject. Um, although you can, you can trick it in some instances and get close, like closer to 60, 70. Uh, but if you want to ensure that you have a crisp picture, especially, um, the iPhone 10, I find has a, in some ways a lot harder time focusing than previous versions of iPhones. It just takes a, an extra half a second and I'm not sure why that is, but regardless, um, you know, maybe stick closer to the to the 80 millimeter figure if you're trying to to get a sharp close picture. Uh, the 52 millimeter lens, uh, that one has a much further minimum focus distance. Um, I got a couple different results uh, based on different things I was shooting, and it also depends on um, what you're looking at for the minimum focus distance for the actual lens or the minimum focus distance for portrait mode. 
um, because the the lens itself is closer to around 160 to 180 millimeters. So um, if I'm just shooting with a 2x, I can get a crisp picture for, of of a subject when I'm about 170 millimeters away. Um, however, if you want portrait mode to engage, most of the time when I tried this, I still got the like move farther away error in portrait mm-hmm. mode. Yeah. Um, and portrait mode works much better if you're at 200 millimeters or further away from your, from your subject. Um, so in reality, what does that look like? That's, um, that's about a hand's distance, a hand, a hand and a half, um, depending on the size of your hand, uh, and whether it's, you know, my hand or, or your hand, Stephen, measuring it. Um, essentially, if you're trying to do my general uh, suggestion, if you're curious about this, for instance, because you want to do pseudo macro photography with portrait mode, um, I would actually trust the the regular, like the actual natural focus points on the lenses and shoot with the wide angle. If you're going to shoot, if you want to shoot macro, because I think that the natural, the all natural, you know, bokeh blur effect that comes from the 28 millimeter and shooting uh, pseudo macro is a lot better than trying to use the 52 millimeter to kind of get that same shot and use portrait mode to yeah. kind of blur it up. It just, just doesn't look as good. Thank you for busting out the ruler. That's <laughs> I do that's many things for our listeners, including, including rulers. Um, so here's, here's a question for you, Steven. Uh, Troy would like to know, is there anything that he can pair his Apple watch to, to determine his cadence while cycling, did you did you take your Apple Watch out and try and do some cycling testing? <laughs> I did. Uh, I did ride my bike this weekend, and I'm going again this afternoon. And I wear an Apple Watch. Uh, however, there there doesn't seem to be any measuring this at this point with an Apple Watch. So the built-in workout app uh, only pairs with Bluetooth heart rate monitors or gym kit enabled devices, which are basically non-existent at this point. It does seem like WatchOS 4 could allow this in the future, but at this point, the only uh, Bluetooth health stuff the watch can do is with a heart rate monitor, which, of course, won't set your cadence, which is basically looking at your uh, uh, your uh, rate of pedaling, I guess is a simple way to explain it. However, there are a bunch of iPhone apps that do this, including Strava, which is what I use. But uh, if you just want to take the watch and leave the phone behind, you'll have to give up uh, cadence measurement for now. And of course there are like bike computers and other stuff you can do. Um, but unfortunately right now, if you just want to have a watch and something on your, on your bike, uh, then, uh, you're kind of out of luck. This is something though. It seems like every year with health kit and, and watch OS, there seems to be like, okay, this is like really obvious next stuff they should do. And most of the time they do those things. And so I would hope that this becomes an option with watchOS or a future Apple watch to pair to a cadence sensor on your bike. And so you can get that information into health kit. It seems like something a lot of people would want. A lot of cyclists really want this information. So I'm hopeful that one day we'll see it. But for now, uh, unfortunately, last question, this is another from Rashio. It's two for two this week. Uh, can I put the iPhone into airplane mode and still get accurate GPS data when using the camera app? And, and the reason why I ended up, picking uh, two for Michio because I thought that uh, his camera questions were really interesting. Um, and I actually didn't know this answer. Uh, so I did, again, more hands-on testing uh, and did some some digging. 
Um, and it turns out that as of iOS 8.2, Apple actually does not turn off the GPS antenna at all when you enable airplane mode. It is considered a safe a safe antenna uh, because it's primarily designed to receive coordinates, uh, not broadcast them. Uh, so it's not it wouldn't hypothetically mess with any instrumentation uh, if you were in a plane. Um, so in theory, uh, you should be able to take a photo in airplane mode um, and you'll be able to look at its you know, metadata in the Photos app either by swiping up and looking at the little map below it or using a third-party app like Metafo um, and seeing the location. You might not get street names uh, when you're still in airplane mode because uh, you might need data to, to load that if you don't have it cached. Um, but otherwise, it should it should work just fine. Um, I will say that if you have the Wi-Fi and cellular antennas disabled, it may take longer to get a GPS lock because of the way mm -hmm. that the iPhone works with GPS. Is of course it has a natural GPS antenna, but it also uses um, what it's what's called assisted GPS, which essentially it pings Wi-Fi towers to see. Oh, hey. You're, you know, you're in the neighborhood and I know where your, your physical location is. And therefore I can use that data in addition to my GPS data to provide a, a precise, hyper precise lock. Um, so if you don't have those antennas on, uh, your, your lock may be slightly broader. However, in my testing and I was, you know, around Vancouver yesterday, uh, or this week, this past weekend. So I, I did a couple of tests, you know, near the mountains, near in a, in a big city. Like I did a couple of different places to see how it would react, uh, when taking photos in airplane mode. Um, and by and large, I didn't have too much variation uh, I did, as I said, I had a, a slightly bigger margin of error when, uh, when closer to the mountains. Um, and I had a, and I'm, I definitely had a margin of error on a plane, which I tried, uh, last night <laughs> flying, flying back to, uh, back to New England. So, uh, so yeah, I would say for the, for the most part ratio, uh, you can still get most, like I would say, you know, 90, 90 to 98% accurate GPS data. PS, I'm not, I'm math major all those percentages are estimates and not actually <laughs> you know apple <laughs> apple give me help me out here um but uh you may run into trouble if you're say on a plane or on a remote mountain where it might be hard yeah. for it to get a gps lock and and most photo apps you know whatever photo service you use will will they're very often will let you set a manual location and so if it's off but you know where the picture is you can always go in and and tweak that information later. So it's, um, it's not set in stone based on the GPS that's kind of baked in at, at the time of the photograph. So you have some options on the back end too. It's excellent. All righty. Uh, thank you for listening to query this week. You can find our show notes. So links to the documents we talked about, all the apps Serendi was talking about for iOS film editing and more on our website, relay.fm slash query slash 19. To submit questions to the show, please tweet with the hashtag AskQuery. In the meantime, you can find Serenity there as Saturn, S-E-T-T-E-R-N. And you can find her writing and research and rulering over at imore.com. I'm ISMH on Twitter and write 512pixels.net. Until our next episode, Serenity, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios.